News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with our Roger Sohal this morning. And let's find out how the weather went over on the North Shore. How are things over there? Did you see snow, Roger? We sure did. And it was so magical, so pretty. It had been raining, uh, just dumping rain. And then suddenly <clears throat> I looked up and I was like, wait, that looks like something thicker. And then my kids started screaming and <laughs> lo and behold, it was it was snow. We had snow for a few hours, actually, like probably three hours. Um, and then the kids' soccer was inaccessible. Nice. The practice was inaccessible <laughs> because of the roads around it being blocked by fallen trees. So it was like, okay, let's go home and read books and enjoy this uh, pretty snow falling. And Simi, as I drove out, we had to drive out last night to South Surrey. Had to, I say. It was for some family bowling. But we saw plenty of vehicles on the one with a layer of snow on them, like snow that wow. stuck and stayed. But it was really pretty. So that must have been, I guess, where all the snow was falling was out that way. Because I, I kept seeing that and reading about it, that snow was falling. And I thought, where, where? Because I didn't get to see any of it. Uh, but it sounds like we might see more of that a little bit. Anyway, wet snow, some flurries perhaps uh, tonight, tomorrow. But did you hear about some of these other temperatures? Like it is cold in other parts of this province and next door. Yeah. And um, I'm not ready for it. I'm not ready for the cold. You mentioned parkas earlier. And I yes, was like, parkas. parkas. Oh, I still want to wear my jean jacket. I made the mistake of not taking vacation time this summer. The weather was just so lovely this summer that I thought, you know what? This is like fine. I don't need to take time off to enjoy it. I'm enjoying it plenty now. But now that feels like winter is upon us, I'm going, hmm, I should have taken Where a week. Was yeah. Where was that sunshine when I needed it? <laughs> feels like a long time ago. Very sunny, but I love it. I love this like cold weather. How did you do with the time change, by the way? Oh, that was a bit of a bummer. So I was really looking forward to this extra hour of what I thought was going to be delicious sleep. My alarm goes off and I look at my phone because that unfortunately is my alarm. And I'm like, wait a second. No, where's my extra hour? So I didn't even notice it, Simi. It didn't even make a difference. Oh, really? I really <laughs> felt it. I felt it going to bed last night because obviously I'd had that extra hour of sleep. And so I had a little bit more trouble actually going to bed on the um, Sunday night. But I know it hits some people hard. And of course, if they want to share that story. They can email me on that. Uh, but today we also are talking about um, a great local institution. Tell us about this. Yeah, the Vancouver Art Gallery has gone through a lot of changes. And, you know, we've been hearing from, especially, gosh, during the mayoral campaign, we heard so many promises about how different leaders thought we could improve the city's cultural capital. You know, Kennedy Stewart was saying, oh, bars just need to be open later. And Ken Sim said, we're going to improve our culture by uh, allowing drinking in all the parks then to me, Simi, those are not solutions to make Vancouver a you know international destination for culture, to make it a cultural hub. But now Vancouver Art Gallery, they used to be somewhat on the map in terms of a cultural destination. And a couple of years ago, a few years ago, they ousted their very controversial director, somebody that uh, pe some people loved, some people couldn't stand, Kathleen Bartels. They got rid of her and they brought in Anthony Kindle. Now, he's been CEO at the Vancouver Art Gallery since... Uh, he's done major fundraising for them for their new building, but also quietly something has been happening within the organization in those years. And that's that they're building a team. It's a team like no other cultural institution in Vancouver. And now the Vancouver Sun announced their most recent hire at the Vancouver Art Gallery, and it's Sirish Rao. 
He'll be the director of public engagement and learning. Now, this is a brand new position that they did not have at the VAG before. So he's not recruited from elsewhere, like abroad or anything like that. He's been building Vancouver's cultural scene for years already. He co-founded a very popular festival in Vancouver called the Indian Summer Festival. He's uh, got international experience. He's been at the Getty in LA, the Museum of London. So he's got these connections. He's been building these relationships. He's bringing that expertise to the Vancouver Art Gallery. And this is a, a role that's been sorely missed at any institution in Vancouver for years. So the, the Vancouver Art Gallery, the Surrey Art Gallery, Burnaby, New West, they don't have, they haven't had the kind of budget that would allow for a director of public engagement. But that's the role that you need to engage the public, to draw the audiences and make it so that van so that um, art galleries rather are not this kind of silo that they sometimes mm -hmm. are. You hear about programming that they're doing, but you're like, uh, well, didn't really understand what it was about because they didn't do any outreach, they didn't do any public outreach. This guy is going to make such a difference at the Vancouver Art Gallery that I feel it's going to change the tide. Okay, that's an, that's interesting because, you know, I feel like pre-pandemic, you know, leading up to it, the Vancouver Art Gallery was getting busier and busier. They had all those great exhibits and you could always see them and they did a great job, but perhaps it was just like a pandemic thing that kind of fell off the radar. Yeah, well, I think that they haven't been able to draw different kinds of people to the gallery. I think that they had been leaning in previous years on the same people coming and not trying to bring stuff to a new audience, to bring people who have, you know, never even been into an art gallery before. And I think that this guy, Sarish Rao, is the one to do it. I've met him several times. Uh, he is just so, so passionate, not just about art, but really about that link mm -hmm. of bringing it to people. And Vancouver Art Galleries sorely needed this position. And I feel like they are right now gearing up to become a very big player in the art mm -hmm. scene in Canada. And also, I think, internationally. And that new building, when that comes through, is going to be epic. <laughs> oh, that new building. That's another topic for another day. Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It's a kind of story that you think is in the movies or on a TV show, but it does happen and happens right here in BC too. In fact, on Friday, a BC medium security prison was under lockdown. It's believed a drone dropped a firearm on the premises. Correctional Services of Canada did confirm that there was that lockdown. This was at the Mission Medium Institution, and they said that was a serious incident that happened on Thursday. Got us wondering, though, how often is this happening? How can correctional officers even cope with that kind of, you know, ingenuity in trying to get weapons into the hands of prisoners? What do you do? Well, joining us now to talk about this is John Randall, the regional president of the Union of Canadian Correctional Officers. John, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. How common are stories like this, John? Uh, they're becoming more common daily. So what kind of circumstances are we talking about? Uh, well, we're seeing drone drops almost happening daily across the country. Um, here in BC, we're seeing them happen uh, extremely frequent, uh, frequently, um, and that's the ones we catch. We don't even know how many we don't catch at this time. So, is there a mechanism for dealing with this? Like, is there is extra training that you know correctional officers have received? How how does it happen? Well, right now we're relying on basically officer presence. Uh, 
and intervention right now. Um, that's the way we're detecting drones right now. Back in 2019, CSC was supposed to launch a pilot project for drone intervention, but it still hasn't occurred yet. So we're sitting in 2022, three years later, with nothing in place yet. Okay, so that was prior to the pandemic. So what kind of pilot project would that have been? Uh, they announced some sort of drone uh, detection radar system that was supposed to occur in five institutions across the country. Um, their goal was to have it in place uh, by March 2022 uh, within the five institutions. But as of now, we haven't seen any in any of the institutions yet. So really, we're relying on correction officers uh, being out there uh, using some ion scanners, X-ray machines, metal detectors, and our drug dog detectors uh, to find these drones and the contraband that's being introduced. Yeah, can you give us an idea of how challenging that is, John? Like trying to police an entire prison area and prevent drones from coming over there. Like what's involved in that? <laughs> it's probably one of the hardest things we have to do as correction officers because um, you're, you're worried about your normal activities. Now you have to worry about uh, monitoring the skies as well. And we just simply don't have that technology. So and with the size of the institutions, it's really tough to cover that much ground in such a short period of time. Right. So is it, well, like, where do they drop this stuff? Like, do they drop it in the yard? And, you know, what do you do when you spot something like that? We've seen them drop them in exercise yards. The drone technology is so advanced now that they can fly right up to uh, a cell window or a very small area. So we've seen uh, amazing advancements in drone technology that we just have to step up and, and follow. And as far as what do we do, each institution has a different protocol, again, from maximum to medium to minimum, on what they do when a drone is detected and and how they respond. So it varies from site to site to site, but generally speaking, it requires correction officers to respond urgently and put themselves at risk. So how much of this stuff do you think is being caught and how much do you think is getting through? Oh, that's such a tough thing to even even guess. You know, like uh, one of the biggest drops I've seen uh, came at Kent Institution and it came uh, back in August or September and it had $86,000 worth of contraband in it. Um, and that was just one of, of many. You know, we get intel on a daily basis that drone drops are occurring. And, you know, <laughs> so the numbers are tough to, to speculate. $86,000 worth of contraband? Like that seems like it would be a, a, a large amount that you would, you know, be pretty obvious that this was being dropped in the prison. It's amazing how quickly that contraband can be disseminated when you have, you know, 100 pr- prisoners in any one small area. Wow. Okay. So do you feel then, John, like that this the system is just not keeping up with technology right now? 100%. The drone technology is advancing uh, so much faster than we are right now. And the federal government and corrections has an opportunity now to really step up with some of this technology. There's some great detection systems out there. It's just a matter of getting them in place. Okay. And is there any, do you think, um, appetite to do that right now? Like what's on the horizon here? Well, we keep being told that there is a plan for a pilot project, but you know, we need to get those moving fast. There's a lot of red tape that's involved and, and sometimes that red tape has got to be put aside for the safety of officers and even the inmates as well. So, yeah, what are you hearing from officers then about the challenges in dealing with this? It's, it's tough. It's, it's really tough. We've seen a dramatic increase in overdoses. Um, you know, the weapon introduction, like we see ceramic knives coming in and quite frankly, it's, it's, it's creating a lot of stress on correctional officers who already face a tough job on their day-to-day basis without having these extra added features um, now being introduced. So with the pandemic restrictions kind of ending now, do you feel like, is, is, is there hope that this will be dealt with? Are you hopeful? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Uh, I'm hoping that CSC, especially with what happened at Mission this last weekend here, 
I'm hoping that CSC really, uh, um, I guess, gets these detection systems in place ASAP. Do we know what happened out in Mission? Are they talking about that? Nothing has been confirmed yet. I know that they're researching, so that's all that we've been told at this time. Right, but you're saying it's more common than we realize, right? So for an institution like the Mission Medium Institution, how often might they be dealing with a drone, a drone drop? Oh, I would I would say at least the intel says it's on a, at least a weekly basis, if not more frequently. Really? And so how far away might this be coming from? How, like where where would the person controlling the drone be potentially? Well, right now technology uh, has advanced so much that drones can carry up to 20 pounds. And that's just your standard drone that any one of us can buy. Um, so they say right now like a medium range drone or a medium class drone, which can carry up to 10 to 12 pounds. The operator can be five to seven kilometers from the drop location. Wow. Okay. So, wow, that must be incredibly frustrating for your officers. Extremely frustrating because, you know, we used to back, you know, five and 10 years ago before drones, we used to deal with throwovers, but that would require somebody being within, you know, 20 or 30 yards of the fence, which we could see and possibly stop. But now this is a completely new uh, problem and we, we can't even see it coming. No kidding. Uh, listen, thanks for talking to us about it this morning. We appreciate your time. No, thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That's John Randall, Regional President of the Union of Canadian Correctional Officers, talking about the drone problem in our prisons. We know that the medium security prison admission was under lockdown on Friday because of a believed drone incursion that potentially dropped a firearm on the premises. And apparently, according to John, this is more common than we realize and something needs to be done to tackle it. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, what a weekend we had weather-wise. Maybe you lost power. Maybe you saw snow. Who knows? You probably saw a little bit of everything. It is cold out there. These kind of mixed conditions staying with us for the next 24, 36 hours or so. But at one point, there were hundreds of thousands of hydro customers without power. So let's find out how things have been going, what kind of challenges BC Hydro was facing. Joining us now is Maura Scott, the spokesperson for BC Hydro. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I'm assuming you've gotten very little sleep in the last three days. Yeah, it's been a busy few days, but certainly the crews have worked much, much harder than me. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about the the storm at its worst. What kind of damage did it do? Yeah, so that storm that kind of swept across the south coast on Friday night left about 330,000 customers without power, obviously on Vancouver Island, the Gulf Islands, Sunshine Coast, and here in the Lower Mainland. Wow. Okay. So was that all over the place? Are we talking mainly trees down? Yeah. So we're talking a lot of trees and branches down um, that ended up blocking roads, tore down power lines, knocked down poles, uh, you name it. We basically saw everything. And did the continuing kind of weather conditions and the snow and anything, did that provide any challenges in trying to get everybody back up? Um, We did see a few additional outages from that, but nothing major, fortunately. Um, Obviously, these types of systems that come through are something that we planned for. Uh, We knew that Friday night was likely going to be bad, and so uh, we had sent home a number of our crews earlier in that day so that they could get some rest time so that we could basically have a full complement of crews working overnight. And uh, all of our BC Hydro crews and contractor crews have basically been working uh, nonstop uh, throughout the weekend and they're continuing to work today as well. Right. Okay, so more let me ask you then, because I know BC Hydro had also been highlighting the concerns about 
perhaps some of the stability issues involving trees because of the drought conditions did we have? Do you think that contributed to uh, how many big trees kind of toppled over? Oh, absolutely. So uh, we know that obviously we had a really dry summer, very little precipitation. So that resulted in a bunch of uh, drought weakened trees and other vegetation. But I think what compounded that was we've actually seen two summers in a row of that. So we had a bunch from last year and then really no major significant storm events that happened last year. So there was a healthy stock of drought uh, we can trees from last year, and then we had all these new ones from this year. So we knew that sort of first system, um, which we saw on Friday, that kind of was going to sweep through, was going to cause some pretty significant damage. Obviously, it's something that we've been preparing for for months, um, and something that we've been trying to warn customers to also be prepared for because we knew the damage was going to be quite significant. Would you? Is that how you would classify it? That it was quite significant. Yeah, it was a it was a significant storm for us. Certainly, three hundred and thirty thousand customers without power is not something that we see very often. But obviously, something that we do prepare for year round. We are kind of in the business of responding uh, to these pretty significant um, weather events. So something that we that we were prepared for. Like I said, we did have kind of all hands on right. deck all weekend working to get people back up. Okay, so and where are we at then right now in terms of getting everybody back up? Yeah, so um, just to go back a little bit, by yesterday morning, we had about 98,000, or sorry, 98% of customers uh, restored. So we had restored about 320,000. And then we were basically left with the really remote kind of complicated job. So crews worked um, all day yesterday. We had almost everybody back up by the end of the night last night. What we're left with right now um, is kind of a handful of customers in Seashell, Gibson, and Powell River, and then small pockets in the Fraser Valley um, we're either there right now or we're on our way to restore power to those customers. But those have been um, the jobs where we've had access issues, whether it's trees or not being able to get through with ferries or that type of thing, or where the jobs are just really, really complicated, like multiple spans of lines down a number of poles that need to be replaced. So that's sort of what we're left with today, but we're, we're going to get everybody back up today, and that's absolutely our goal. Okay. Any concerns on ahead in the forecast? I noticed there are still some winds in the next 24 hours or so. Yeah, I mean, obviously something we're going to pay very close attention to. I mean, we're really fortunate at BC Hydro, especially uh, when we have an event that's isolated to one region. We're actually able to pull in our crews and other contractor crews from other areas of the province. So we have enough people to deal with whatever's to come. And and yeah, obviously something we're keeping a close eye on to make sure that we're ready if the lights do go out. Right. And now that we've seen, obviously, winter storms are on our radar, which they weren't right a few weeks ago. Yeah. uh, What would you like people to do? Like, what is BC Hydro's message to people to get ready for this? How can we help? Yeah, I mean, I think that we know with um, all these sort of major weather events that we've been having that people are just kind of feeling a bit overwhelmed and like they're not sure how to prepare and sometimes maybe not trusting the weather forecast. But I mean, the the real thing that we really want people to consider doing is have that 72-hour emergency kit. I mean, storms happen, outages do happen, and we really want our customers to be prepared. So they should have things like a flashlight, extra batteries, food, water, and a first aid kit. And then other than that, really to just know where to go to get information if your power does go out and the best place to find that anytime is at bchydro.com slash outages. Right. If they have access to that, I guess somehow try to get access to that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I guess the other great thing to to think about having in that emergency kit is a battery pack for your cell phone, because I know most of us can't live without our cell phones at this point. So that would be a great thing to include in that emergency kit. That is true. Very true. Maura, thanks so much for your time. 
Great. Thanks so much for having me. That is Maura Scott, spokesperson for BC Hydro, talking about how they've been working over the last couple of days to get everybody back up and running. At the peak of the storm, 330,000 BC Hydro customers without power. So that was overnight Friday into Saturday. And uh, right about now, they're, they're getting there, they said. They're almost there today. They should have everybody hooked back up to their power. But, of course, we do have a little bit of wind in the forecast tonight, too. I saw just, you know, some huge trees uh, down roads blocked off on Saturday when I was out and about. This is Mornings with Simi. You've probably heard this name by now. Bryce Michael Flores Bevington. He had two sexual assault charges, an assault charge, and a charge of uttering threats that were pending when he was let out on bail. But within 24 hours, breached his bail conditions and was arrested again. Uh, this is somebody who's been in the news time and time again. So is this a sign that the system worked like it was supposed to or isn't working at all? For more on this, we're joined by Raji Sohal. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, so the suspect, he's that one that was accused of the random attack in the lobby in Vancouver. That video footage from the surveillance stuff, it just gives me chills because it it's so brazen the way that he follows the victim into her own building. And, you know, you'd look at his track record. He's he's dangerous, right? Like multiple charges out against him. He was released with a warning, a big warning to the public. And now some people say, like, why should the public be on alert? Why should the public have to wait around until he reoffends when he's out on bail? Now, in this in this case, he breached those bail conditions pretty quickly, was arrested within 24 hours. And some people say, good, that's a system working because, uh, you know, he was out. He was caught quickly because he he breached those bail conditions. Other people say, uh, you know, that offender, when he gets released in the first place, that is where your system is wrong. And so, no, the system is not working. And I talked to Kevin Falcon, the BC Liberal leader, about this issue with the province's revolving door with offenders. And he agrees and he says that th- there should be consequences for violating bail conditions in the first place so that we don't have people who keep doing this, keep falling back into the system over and over again. Things need to change drastically, and I really want the public to understand this. I mean, this incident, as alarming as it is, is unfortunately not a rare exception. It is more uh, what is we're, what we're seeing commonly happening within our system. And I believe the whole system of justice is being brought into ill repute if we don't deal with this. Now, uh, a lot of it is um, under the direction of David Eby while he was Attorney General. And I want to be clear about this. I'm not just saying this about politics. It's about reality. There has been a 75% increase in what they call no-charge assessments under this uh, NDP government, meaning that the police are recommending charges, but there's been a 75% increase where they say, well, we're not charging them. And coupled with that, there has been a massive violation of bail conditions. So people get conditions imposed on them. They're released back into the community. They completely ignore or violate the bail conditions. There's no consequences for that. Nobody's being, uh, you know, going to jail or being held um, uh, yeah, accountable for the fact that they're totally violating bail conditions. And the result of this catch and release system has been total chaos in communities. And we have been calling for changes uh, for a year now. And in the spring, uh, finally under pressure, what David Eby did is he said, okay, I'm gonna hire consultants to tell me how to do my job. And I'll tell you, every single day that we don't make changes, easy changes that could be made to tighten up uh, parole conditions, for example, 
um, we are putting the public at risk, and I'm very concerned about that. What do you think the public wants done about repeat offenders? They've really noticed over the last five years that in virtually every community, and this isn't just in Vancouver, by the way, it's particularly bad in Vancouver, but it's in every community across the province to varying degrees, in Prince George and Kitimat Terrace, you name it, they're all struggling with the same issue, to the point where the mayors of all the largest cities wrote to the Attorney General and said to David Eby, for God's sakes, please stop this catch and release program, and here's the impact it's having on our communities. So Vancouver, for example, and that was you know under the former NDP um, mayor of Vancouver, pointed out that there are 40 individuals in Vancouver that have been arrested 6,385 times over the past year. Now just think about that for a minute. 40 individuals, 6,385 times. So, Simi, you know, I, we work in the news. I feel like we're exposed to these stories all the time. And, and it's easy to get just swept up with the sensationalizing of it and going, oh, you know, Vancouver is no longer a safe place whatsoever. So I have that check on myself all the time to, like, look at the numbers and to really think things through, not just look at the headlines. And you know what? I don't feel safe in Vancouver the way that I did say 10 years ago. And I asked Mr. Falcon about that. Is he feeling safe in the city? He told me he actually feels safer walking the streets in New York City. I'm way more alert today than I ever would have been five, six, seven years ago. In other words, I'm looking around behind me once in a while and just checking people a lot more carefully. And that's because of the fact that some of these random assaults, like that young man in Yaletown, the 25-year-old that was stabbed to death by a random stranger uh, who attacked him from behind, the you know the poor young um, Mexican tourist that was in a Tim Hortons, I believe it was, that was viciously stabbed for, for no reason whatsoever. Um, so a lot of these random assaults are are, are very uh, violent, and you know they happen you know just unexpectedly. So I find myself way more aware. And, and when I'm with my daughters, believe me, I am hyper vigilant. Yeah, and in the last year, Simi, I have I've noticed rethought which routes I'm going to walk downtown. And it's not just Vancouver proper. I feel the same way when I'm in New West, when I'm in Surrey, where I grew up, when I'm in Burnaby. And I don't take transit by myself in the dark anymore, whereas I used to before. Again, like I'm aware of the news stories. And so I, I have to make sure that I don't sensationalize or fear monger myself. Um, but right. I'm hearing from, you know, friends too, that, you know, friends, uh, we text each other. Oh, I was followed by a stranger yesterday or I was harassed on my sunrise morning speed walk. I don't think I'm going to do my morning walks anymore. People are changing their behavior as a result of these random stranger attacks and these repeat offenders that we feel like we can't yeah. trust our government is keeping them off the streets. I think it's also the difference in these stories as well as the video, right? Maybe we didn't hear as much about these kinds of stories before because the video wasn't so visual and illustrative of how scary these things are that are happening. When you see people just kind of walking around and suddenly being attacked, I think that really heightens everybody's fear. Yeah, the video makes a difference. And I feel like people now have kind of swivel head, whereas before, so maybe they're still walking around at night by themselves. But whereas before they weren't looking around constantly, now they're always checking, looking around the corner, always wondering if, you know, someone could potentially even have a weapon on them. I don't remember thinking like that 10 years ago in Vancouver. 
Yeah, I don't remember that either. Although, you know, I know there's cycles to these things, but right now we're not, I think, alone in facing this either. Like other big cities. I know Kevin Falcon said that about New York City, but honestly, like if you read any of the New York papers, you would find that many people in New York are also feeling this way. Yeah, there's, uh, I think, coming out of the pandemic, more fear in general in cities, not just cities, uh, suburbs too, of this kind of thing happening. And also in New York City, you're not going to get the news headlines about the kind of stuff that we have news headlines all the time here. They just have too much going on. So maybe there's not the same kind of reporting either. The, the video surveillance is interesting because it was, you know, these crimes were happening before, but we didn't know they were happening because we didn't have the video. Now that we have the video, it's hard to forget, right? Like he, Kevin Falcon mentioned the Tim Hortons incident. I don't think I'm ever going to forget that incident uh, because the video was so chilling and jarring. Um, And you know what? I am one for like, these videos should be seen. People should know that this is potentially something that can happen. Should you walk around in total fear? No, but just to have it uh, in your mind that you, you know, walk street smart. That is very, very true. Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it has been more than four years since health ministers from across the country have managed to meet in person. But that is what is happening starting today, actually, right here in Vancouver, where all 13 provincial and territorial health ministers are expected to meet with their federal counterpart. And of course, the topic being more money for the health care system. And that has been an ongoing demand, not just from health ministers, but from Canada's premiers as well. What kind of a difference would it make to get a deal with the federal government? Well, to talk more about these issues, Stephen Staples joins us now, the National Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Canadian Health Coalition. Stephen, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. How important do you think these meetings are? They're essential, Simi. Uh, there's a huge crisis going on in our health care system. I think everybody is aware of that. Anyone who's tried to get a family doctor or who's had to spend hours sitting in an emergency room Uh, We know there's a crisis, and not all of it is related to money, but a big chunk of it is, and costs are going up. So we really hope to see some kind of thawing of the very frozen relationship that we've got right now between these provinces and the federal government. Yeah, is there a similarity to the stories that the provinces are telling, Stephen? Well, their their coalition, they have a coalition going, uh, and uh, their position is we want more money. Uh, and that's really kind of how, as far as it goes. Uh, each province uh, argues very strenuously for their own autonomy. You know, they say uh, they're responsible for delivering uh, health care, and the federal government should be contributing uh, more money to it. And they really don't want to put any conditions on the money that the federal government would be giving them. Uh, some provinces say it's a interference in their, in their jurisdiction. Um, but the federal government uh, says, well, you know, we're, we're willing to talk about giving you more money, but uh, we, we, we think it's reasonable to say we want to know what you want to do with the money. Right. Is this an age-old issue, though, Stephen? Like, is this something that time and time again has come up between provinces and the federal government? Yeah, it's the story of Canada, isn't it? Uh, provinces unhappy with the federal government, the federal government feeling that it's not getting uh, it's not getting the credit and trying to put in its own uh, its own standards and arguing over uh, uh, transfers. Uh, yeah, it's it's a long story, 
But that doesn't mean uh, we can't have some success. I mean, we've seen, for instance, uh, the national child care programs come through. It was uh, was negotiated uh, province by province. Eventually, we got everybody on side. And uh, that's uh, that's delivering really good, uh, you know, services to Canadians. And I think we can do this. We can do this in healthcare as well. But I think that everybody is going to have to compromise a little bit. Oh, in what way? What do you think? Well, you know, I mean, I, I know that the, the, the provinces, you know, they just want more money from the federal government. But, I, you know, our position is that it's not unreasonable for the federal government to say, look, uh, we at least want to make sure that the money we give you for health care goes into health care. I mean, some provinces are even balking at, at even that suggestion. Uh, and, and so one has to wonder when they're arguing about percentages, when you kind of look at that kind of calculation, whether they're not thinking of just replacing provincial dollars with federal dollars. Uh, so, so we're going to have at least that kind of uh, point. But on the other hand, uh, we want to see some new programs in. The federal government wants to have uh, dental care is coming through. We def- desperately need pharmacare, has long been promised. Canadians are, are having a hard time with affordability. And uh, so we think there could be some kind of grand bargain here between the provinces and the federal government where the feds would kick in some more money for the Canada health transfer in return for some of that money or uh, program money being used to deliver specific programs that the provinces would be responsible for, like Pharmacare. Okay, so then, Stephen, I know everybody was saying that, and you just pointed out it's a contentious relationship, right, between uh, the provinces and the federal government on this. Is there room, though, to make some of these smaller deals, though, to have some small progress made? Well, you know, uh, if you ever study, you know, if you've ever been in a union and done negotiations, you know, you do you deal with the small things first and deal with the money last. So, for instance, if Duclos can go there, our the federal health minister, Johnny Duclos, can go there and say, get a deal on information sharing or something like that, you know, then that begins the basis of trust building and, and getting some kind of cooperation uh, going. And so I think that uh, that could be a good piece. But whether the provinces are willing to do that or not uh we'll have to see i know that minister dix has been very vocal in the national media um uh, on 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 leading the charge uh for the provinces but you know one has to wonder whether that's going to be a really winning strategy tying himself uh to or or premier ebby to you know francois legault doug ford daniel smith these are very different political characters and i'm sure that the BC government would would certainly make use of health dollars in, in, a, in a very effective way, as they've shown. But for these other provinces, you know, they've just been writing checks to voters and people like that. So I, I think that mm. uh, the, the province might might not have um, the best strategy in mind by uh, going so tightly with some of these other provinces. Well, that's what I'm wondering then. So is there unity? Is there total unity? Or do you think that some other uh, provinces might have different priorities? Their unity is, is just that they want more money. Um, and, and I think that uh, how strong they are on the conditions um, c- could be tested. You know, there was that story leaked in the media a few weeks ago that the federal government was uh, going to do individual deals with various provinces on health care for those that are willing to play ball. Some called it a divide and conquer strategy. A lot of the provinces got upset about it. But, you know, that is the kind of approach that they went with with child care, with individual uh, agreements. And in fact, much of our health care system was was kind of built that way. So 
I don't I don't think that's a, a divide and conquer strategy at all. It, it in fact perhaps recognizes the differences between the provinces, which they're so quick to uh, so quick to point out. But uh, we do have to see uh, some kind of way to break through this stalemate and and running ads and, and, and name calling back and forth. I just don't think is going to work. Right. And we've seen quite a bit of that, too. Though. So what do we know about the federal health minister, though, Jean-Yves Duclos? It was interesting that uh, Health Minister Dix was uh, very uh, complimentary to uh, Minister Duclos. Um, certainly those in our organizations that have met with him have found him very well briefed, very knowledgeable. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's an academic. Uh, he's from Quebec, uh, which I thought is, was a particularly brilliant move by the Prime Minister, appointing someone from Quebec uh, as Health Minister who, who could help understand Quebec and help head off any criticism, perhaps bringing Quebec on. But um, he's well he's well regarded. And I noticed that uh, uh, much of the um, complaints or the blame, and it's been a lot of blame going around uh, from the provinces, has been pointing at the uh, prime minister himself trying to separate off uh, Minister Duclos. And and and, uh, well, we'll have to see how that relationship goes. They haven't met in a long time. And uh, we'll see what comes out of the next couple of days. Yes, we will. Stephen, thank you for your time on that. My pleasure. Thanks, Amy. That's Stephen Staples, National Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Canadian Health Coalition, watching closely as health ministers are meeting for the first time. We're talking all 13 provincial and territorial health ministers meeting in person for the first time since 2018, and they will be meeting with their federal counterpart, Jean-Yves Duclos. That is happening today and tomorrow here in Vancouver. And this is a bit of a tense time because provinces want more money. The number that you always hear referred to when it comes to this healthcare uh, you know, discussion is the fact that the Canada Health Transfer, which is the money that each province and territory gets for healthcare, uh, they, you know, that's gone way down over the years. They want to get it boosted back up to 35% of their healthcare budgets, up from what they now say amounts to 22%. You've heard Premier John Horgan in the past talking about this extensively as well. So the big question is, yeah, they're having these meetings. Yes, they're in person for the first time in four years. But is it actually going to mean that we will see some improvements to the healthcare system? That's what we will be closely watching for. This is Mornings with Simi. 